And again, we're reading from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead on them, on him, of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's fun to be with you guys again. I always enjoy coming down. This, I was sitting there as Mark was talking, thinking, how many years have I actually been doing this? Um, and it's a long time. It was uh, 17 years ago I started Biola, and it wasn't too long after that that I first came down here through connections with Todd Pickett, who knew, you know, a bunch of folks and one thing or another, and it had just been an absolute delight. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. It's really fun to be here on Palm Sunday. And we have a really interesting and intriguing passage to look at. Uh, let me begin by just kind of asking to think about something. This is more of a conceptual analogy I'd like to make, but I don't know if you have had the experience I've had, but I've gone through a lot of people who kind of changed their diet for some reason. We, we talk about going on diets, which is included in this, but I'm not so much thinking about people who go on diets to, to lose weight or w whatever that might be, but to change their diet to eat something that's better for them, eat something that's good for you. And so we pick up on fads, we pick up on things that probably really are good for you, maybe kale, it may be fish, it may be going vegan, flaxseed oil, gluten-free, taste-free, whatever it is that it may be. Uh, you know, we, we go on these kind of change-the-diet things because we think certain foods are good for us. And without disputing any of these claims, you may be sitting there wondering, what in the world is kale? In case you're wondering, I can answer that for you very easily. It's the only stuff left in your garden after the rabbits are through with it. Because even the rabbits don't eat kale, okay? So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. But we know it's good for us, right? Well, we have a way of drifting away from things that are simply good for us when they don't really taste good. Now, I have a batch of other friends who've also gone on diets. Again, not so much to lose weight, but because of the sake of their health. And they have also gone through some pretty substantial changes in what they eat. In fact, actually, a bunch of things I just mentioned would apply to to these folks as well, but they have been actually pretty successful at long-term change, and not just weeks, but months and even years. You know what the difference is? I've had about a half a dozen good friends of mine who've gotten cancer 
recently. And suddenly, changing their diet feels like a matter of life and death rather than simply eating something that's, quote, good for you. Now, here's my question. Today, we're looking at a passage that describes Jesus as a humble king. By the time we're done unpacking this, we realize this isn't just kind of a throwaway line. It's kind of deeply embedded, not just in one or two words in the text, but the whole concept of what's going on. And let me just ask yourself the question, should we be humble because humble is good for us, or should we be humble because it's the only way to cure our cancer? And I'd like to suggest it's actually the latter. I suppose one of the simplest ways to understand the cancer that besets us, the cancer of sin, is through the window of pride. And in fact, historically, Christians over the course of the centuries have often viewed pride as the ultimate sin, or perhaps the best way to put it is the root of all other sins. And they will often kind of define pride by Adam's sin in the garden or the temptation, perhaps that the devil voiced to Eve, of you eat this and you become like God. And that sense of what's pride about, pride is wanting to become like God. And once we make that turn, you, you realize as you say that there's almost an element, not just of kind of ordinary sin, but almost an element of blasphemy in that, right? When you say, I want to be like God, yeah. And when we make that turn, cancer sprouts in our soul. And I would like to argue the only real way to expunge that is through cultivating practices of humility. Following a humble king who leads you into a humble kingdom. And so the passage we're looking at today is, let me put it this way, it's not exactly a hubcap on the Christian life. It's more like the steering wheel. Humility is not a decoration. It's not a thing that, yeah, that's, that's good for me. I think I'll put that right there on the back beside my Biola stickers. It's like the steering wheel. It is that which keeps us pointed actually at Jesus as opposed to all the other things that we might want to pursue. So, with that said, let's take a little bit of a closer look at this, at this passage, this, what you might call the triumphal entry of the humble king. <laughs> it's a little weird, a little paradoxical, and that's one of actually the kind of fun things about this passage. Let me begin by just pointing out that there's something very planned about this whole operation, right? If, in fact, this is one of the, well, not few, but one of the meaningfully sized handful of events in Jesus' life that's recorded in all of the Gospels. And I, I did read through all those this week. I can't remember now. I wasn't taking notes. I did it. But I think actually the fact that Jesus told the disciples ahead of time, hey, just go in and snag a donkey. Um, and if anybody asks you for it, tell them, hey, no problem. The master wants it. And they'll say, okay. And you can imagine the disciples sitting there going, what? Um, and, and so they go off. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. And they're coming back. And you can practically see them saying, man, Jesus must have been like up all night texting to get this whole thing set up. I mean, this is... This is crazy. He's got a palm phone out, you know, solving all these logistical problems. Um, and so you have a weird sense that it was planned, but that's not actually the real point in the passage, right? The point isn't that it was planned. 
the plains that was prophesied. <laughs> this was a thing that was planned like 800 years ago when, when, when these passages were being written and references to them that, that don't even really just go back to Zechariah, well, Zechariah chapter 9, which is where this comes from, but even beyond that in terms of the, the things that's, that, that sit behind this, this passage. So the bottom line is that this event didn't just happen, it was meant to happen. And it was intended to reveal to us something important about what it means to be like Jesus. Or perhaps a better way to put it is it helps us answer an important question in the Gospels. The question that Jesus, perhaps the central question in the Gospels, is who do you say that I am? And it seems that part of the answer to that is I guess you're the humble God who rides on the donkey and enters in peace. It's interesting, the colt donkey image. There is something humble about it compared to like a war horse or something. But let me just point out, biblically, it isn't that uncommon. It's not entirely uncommon in the ancient world in general for a king to ride on a colt or on a donkey. And in this case, the image that Matthew makes explicit is you actually have this foal, the colt, the little one, and they say, take mom too. So if you want to get the image right in your head, you really have this donkey that's so half-baked, the, the foal, that it needs to be led by mom to get the whole operation going. Because the, the old colt really doesn't know what's going on. They just Some guys jumped on top of me, and I don't know what to do, and I'll, I'll just follow mom. So... That's kind of the situation that comes in. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't unknown in Scripture. If you were to look at passages like 1 Kings chapter 1, you'll find Solomon riding in on a, on a donkey. If you read the book of Judges, you'll find all these interesting phrases about, you know, whoever it is has 30 sons and they rode on 30 donkeys. Uh, somebody else had, I think it was 40 sons and 30 daughters. They got 70 donkeys. And so... You have these images of these people who are the sons of a judge or sons of a king who are riding on a donkey. What's always happening in that context is it's a context of peace. They are coming in peace to their people. This isn't how they go off to war. This is how they come to their people in peace. And that's, of course, exactly what Jesus is doing. It's really interesting, actually, in Luke chapter 19 version of this story. Um, at the end of the whole you know, ticker tape parade thing. Uh, Luke comments that Jesus stops and then he has this lament over Jerusalem. And he says, would that even now, would that even now you would understand the things that make for peace. And he's bringing people peace who he discovers really don't want peace. He's offering them a humble king, and they would really rather not have a humble king. And so that's part of what's going on in the imagery. It's interesting to even read. Let me go ahead and read the, the section of Zechariah, because we have a small part of it quoted, but it bears reading just a little bit more in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on, the, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And so you see that part just exactly enacted here in the record that Matthew gives you of, of, of this event. 
Then he goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he'll rule from sea to sea. So you see very deeply embedded in this is not only the humility of Jesus, but the idea that he's bringing a kingdom of peace to people. We're putting away the chariot. We're putting away the war house. We're putting away the bow of war. These things are being set aside, and he's coming to us in peace. Um, I was talking to, to Dave Gunlack earlier this week about this passage, and I was mentioning some of this and said, yeah, this is a, a bit like, you know, Jesus talks in the Beatitudes about the meek shall inherit the land, shall inherit the earth. That's really a quote from Psalm 37. I, it, you know, I went and looked it up. Who knew? Dave was right. I mean, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about because particularly in Psalm 37, really that psalm is sending a message that, you know, if you want to be able to live in the land and prosper, I've got a plan for you. Meekness. Reminds me of Monty Python. Is there someone else up there I can talk to? I mean, it just doesn't sound that inviting, does it? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. True confessions. So uh, Jesus is coming in this humble posture. That humility is, is an act not just of planning and preparation, but actually fulfilled prophecy. The, the whole kingdom he's offering, everything he's bringing is just exactly the things that were foretold. This is the plan, and it's what what Jesus wants us to know about himself. Part of our answer to this question of who do you say that I am? Well, you should describe him as this sort of a humble, peace-bringing king. Now, you might stop and ask as well, what sort of kingdom is he actually bringing? We've talked a little bit about that. And I would point out, it's not the kingdom that anybody was thinking who was there at the time. And I think we're pretty familiar with this about the expectation of the disciples regarding the kingdom. Let me just point out, even the very word Hosanna that everyone's shouting, the word is, is kind of a prayer. It's basically uh, a statement, save us please, or save us Lord. I mean, it's kind of a, a word that embodies, uh, condenses uh, almost a prayer request into it. And it's an idea of a request to God for liberation, for freedom from oppression, from the, for salvation. Because really that's what the, the connotation of salvation is. It's freedom from, from oppression. Uh, and that's, that's the thing that people are shouting. And you know from reading other passages that they have expectations. They ask questions like, Jesus, are you going to bring in the kingdom now? And they're thinking he's going to probably displace the Romans because they were the people from whom they needed salvation, right? The Romans were taxing them, the Romans were oppressing them, and they're looking for someone to come and do that. We find this in Luke 19. He tells them this parable as he was coming close to Jerusalem. It's right in this time frame as well. Um, and they were supposing that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Uh, in the same time frame in the Gospels, you find... Uh, James and John, uh, you know, nudging mom, saying, hey, go talk to Jesus and see if we can fit, sit on his left and right hand in the kingdom. I don't think they were saying, I want a donkey on the left and a donkey on the right. I think they're thinking thrones, right? When Jesus comes and does the thing he's supposed to do with his great big kingdom, pa, that's where we want to be there, and I want to be on his right and left side. Uh, 
after Jesus' resurrection. The apostles are hanging out there, Acts chapter 1. And uh, they're, they're, you know, Jesus is about to ascend. He's about to give the Acts version of the Great Commission. And the disciples are asking, so is this the time you're going to finally bring in the kingdom? So you can tell these guys are looking for a kingdom that Jesus is just not planning on delivering, at least not the way they thought it was. Now let me just make an observation about you and me, and I will include myself in this literally because I discovered this uh, not that long ago, is that when I think of all of this narrative, the way I usually have thought of it is that they were expecting this kingdom to come then and there in the first century, but Jesus is not bringing it then and there. He's bringing it at the second advent when he comes in the cloud with the angels and the archangels sound and the trumpet of God and the dead who are in Christ will rise first and everyone else. That's when we're going to get the kingdom they were looking for. You know, it's really easy and interesting to read the book of Revelation and ask what kind of kingdom actually shows up. Is it the Lion of Judah kingdom? Or is it the Lamb who was slain kingdom? If you were to do a concordance search of those two phrases, you know how many times the Lion of Judah appears in the book of Revelation? Once. You know how many times the lamb who was slain or the lamb who was slaughtered appears? 28 times. And the whole idea that Jesus is saying, oh, I'm planning on conquering, boys. Don't worry about it. Just come a little later than you thought, but baby, I got some swords and I got some horses and we're going to clean this whole thing up. And the language of Revelation is relentless on the idea that Jesus is conquering as the lamb who was slain. He has his robe that he wears, but it's dipped in its blood. You have the martyrs who are waiting. Uh, and and they're going to be, their participation is, is being part of the witnesses of Jesus, but they aren't the soldiers of Jesus. They don't shoot anybody. So I think we have a pretty deep confusion about our intuition about what Jesus program for the kingdom was, the disciples showed us that, and is, I think for most of us, a bit of self-reflection shows us that, is that I was sort of holding out for something that was a little bit more, well, like the Avengers, right? <laughs> I mean, spiritual and stuff, but yeah. So it's, it's an unusual kingdom. And by the way, he's a pretty unusual king too, right? I mean, it isn't just that he rides on the foals. He's riding on the donkey. I mean, he was born in a manger. Apparently, he has a thing for donkeys. So he's, he's born in a manger. So he's a God born in a manger. That's a little weird. And by the way, let me just say God born is weird, right? I mean, getting born isn't like a normal God activity. God is the self-existent one. He doesn't say, hey, not just I think I'll have a baby. I think I'll be a baby. That just doesn't really cut it by our normal expectations. And he's fully God and fully man. Um, he's transcendent. So the God we normally think of, who's eternal, immortal, invisible, God only wise, all these claims of transcendence are very true of Jesus. But he's fully God, but also fully man. He's God with us. The transcendent God become the eminent God who's near and close beside us. That's pretty paradoxical. He's sinless. Yet he's the friend of sinners. He turned the world upside down. He really did. But he never held a position of power. 
never had held any civil office. Um, he never led an army, never founded a school, never even wrote a book. He was prophesied for centuries, yet nobody recognized him when he came. He was welcomed in this passage as a celebrated as a as as the king um, by a whole crowd who were just having a great time with him. Um, but in a few days they would shout for his crucifixion. And both the welcome and the crucifixion were prophesied. <laughs> the plan was for Jesus to be this weird. He's an interesting, provocative Jesus that we worship. And to cap it off in this particular passage, you know, after this great ticker tape parade, as I mentioned, um, he culminates it by lamenting for the very people who are throwing him the parade. So there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on in this passage. And I'd like to take a few moments to enter into this just a little bit more deeply. There's kind of a series of questions that emerge pretty quickly as you begin to think about this. Uh, one is, how can you actually have a humble king? I mean, seriously, how does that really work? And with it, how do you actually have a humble kingdom or whatever sort of a kingdom a humble king generates? What in the world is that? And here's a good one. Should you worship a humble king? Isn't it like worshiping humble sort of an oxymoron? I mean, seriously, if I was talking to Dave and he said, hey, Rick, I just want to check and see if this honorarium was enough. We were going to give you $500. And I said, oh, Dave, don't worry about it. I don't need an honorarium. Yeah, see, Dave's probably thinking, oh, Rick's so humble. But what if I next said, I just prefer to be worshipped? <laughs> I mean, like two songs would probably be enough. I mean, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Talk about humility going out the window, right? <laughs> so <laughs> what do we make, seriously, <laughs> of worshipping a humble king? This is kind of weird. And if perhaps we're thinking as we worship him, we're also in some sense following him, let me just stop and ask, how do you follow a humble king? Do you imitate his humble or do you imitate his king? So these are some of the questions that arise from this passage. And I just want to take a few minutes to kind of poke at some of these questions in the hope that as I'm poking, I'll hit some things that well, I'm basically poking things that hit me, and I'm hoping some of these things will kind of hit you as well as we think about this. So let me begin by trying to get humility right in our minds, because I think because we don't care for it very much, we don't think about it very well. So as one example, believe it or not, the kind of humility we're talking about here apparently is completely compatible with being what you might call mission-driven. Because Jesus certainly seemed to be pretty mission-driven. Uh, and let me begin by just pointing out that humility itself seems to be very compatible with what he perceived his mission to be. He was going to be the shepherd who went and sought out the lost sheep. He was the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve. All these things he's stating in his mission statement kind of do coincide with this. He's the physician who came to heal those who were sick. Um, Actually, Paul goes on to describe Jesus as the quintessential example. When, when he talks about the incarnation, the bullseye of the incarnation is actually humility. It says, Jesus, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself and took on human form. When he would found himself in human form, he, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient, even obedient unto death. So apparently, part of why humility is compatible with Jesus' mission was because humility was Jesus' mission. The other thing is, it appears in the life of Jesus that humility is compatible with a pretty robust sense of asserting yourself relative to your mission. So if you just keep reading in Matthew, <laughs> the wheels start to come off the humble cart, it feels like. Uh, he's confronting people in the temple who have turned the temple of God into a den of robbers. So you find him turning over the temple. Uh, it isn't more than a chapter or so later, chapter and a half later, that he's calling out the Pharisees as whitewashed sepulchers. He has a battle with them about his authority. Where do you get your authority anyhow? And so there's a whole bunch of this stuff, and Jesus backs down from nothing. He backs down from nothing in all of that. So apparently, humility can, can include a very strong commitment to and conviction about your sense of mission. If you wanted to think of kind of more of a definitional approach, here's what I might suggest. Um, humility, I think we automatically think of it as sort of the opposite of pride. Here might be a little bit more profitable way to think about it with a different English cognate. It's the opposite of being self-centered. And when I'm saying that, I'm not thinking, oh, right, we should be other-centered. Not really, though that's a move in the right direction, but I'm saying we should be, in effect, self-forgetful. In other words, the opposite of humility is thinking about yourself all the time and thinking about everything as how it intersects with you. That you become the ultimate barometer of what's right and wrong, what should and shouldn't be happening. All of the world somehow becomes focused. Here. Oh yeah, that does sound like you want to become God, right? Yeah. That profound self-centering. What Jesus offers to us is almost the exact opposite, and that is an opposite of self-forgetfulness, just not thinking about yourself this much. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, as so many other things, is the guy who developed this notion wonderfully. It's not new to him, but he puts it particularly well. And he says, if you were to meet a person who is amazingly humble, the humblest person in the world, you know, think, think about that one. But anyhow, <laughs> I'm part of the humble hall of fame. Um, Here's the thing he says, they wouldn't always be telling you, oh, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, I'm a worm. You realize all those things are self-focused, right? That's exactly not what they would say. Lewis says, the thing we'd probably remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. I'm just not the focus. Tim Keller picks up on this notion. He actually has a great little book called Self-Forgetfulness. I would recommend it highly. It's one of those little micro books, but it's, it's well worth it. But he makes a great analogy. He says, egos should be like toes. And I'm like, okay. Perhaps you could unpack that. So I, he, he says, here's the thing with toes. Um, they're actually just there. 
and they pretty much do their job, but you don't think about them a lot. And in fact, if you are thinking about your toes, in all likelihood, there's something wrong with your toes, right? I mean, take a trip to the podiatrist. That's the message. If you're thinking a lot about your toes, there's something wrong if you are. And he said our ego should be like, it isn't that we should have no ego. It isn't that we should say we're a worthless human being. That's simply to think about ourselves falsely and also reject the teaching of God, right? Our, our ego should be kind of just like our toes, just not thought of a lot, working to keep us balanced. Well, things that it was made to do. Egos are valuable for us in any variety of ways. The problem is they want to become all of us. They won't stay in their lane. So I just, I, I was reading that and thinking about that and going, you know, A, this is, I think it's true. I think it's great. I think it's a great insight. The other thing I realized this is so countercultural to our moment today. We live in the land and time. In fact, <laughs> I bumped into this one. I was reading a book on, on identity, a Christian book talking about how we form our identity. But it had a great quote. We live in an age of self-obsession. Everywhere we look, we encounter a preoccupation with self. Self-interest, self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, self-help, self-acceptance. Acceptance, the list goes on and on and on. And we live in a culture that just celebrates self. In fact, it tends to make it the locus of all meaning and value. Another thing we have is this, to me, kind of a bizarre, obsessive fear of someone defining us. Honestly, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. How do you define Rick Langer? I mean, where do you even say, I mean, if you tried that, you'd probably give a description, right? But that's not a definition. What in the world is it we're so afraid of? And oftentimes when I read people talking about their anxiety about self-definition and telling us to resist that temptation, they talk about expectations, like people who have expectations of you. And I know it's going to sound like I just drove my car off the crazy ferry into the water here, but... What's so bad about expectations? One of my, my when the kids were growing up, we, we used to watch Anne of Avonlea and Anne of Green Gables, whatever. Anyhow, Anne, orphan thing. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes of that is when there's this cranky old aunt who's sort of dominating the life of this other girls sort of Anne's age and Anne comes and takes care of this domineering aunt for a day and gives her, her friend a day off to go and do other things and she comes back and Anne is like now hyper empathetic <laughs> for what she goes through every day and uh, the, this, the, the other girl turns and says oh you know Anne it's, it's not that bad it's nice to be needed and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about that I don't think there's that many things worse than someone saying, I have no need of you. I have no expectation of you. I haven't included you in my calculus for achieving the good. You don't really have anything to contribute. There's nothing that we need of you. I, I'm sorry, I'm a fan of expectations. And of course, like every other thing on planet Earth, they can be distorted, they can be overinflated, and they can be destructive. 
both by the person who's receiving the expectation and also by the person who's giving it. I totally get that, but can't we say the same thing about money? Can't we say the same thing about almost any other good in existence? I think having expectations of others and others having expectations of you is one of the foundations of a good community. And grace to each other when you fail to meet those expectations is another part of that. But you don't solve it by eliminating expectations for fear that someone might have defined you by establishing an expectation that pointed in your direction. So I think we think very, very badly about humility in our culture. And the very idea of thinking about ourselves less is often a violation of the highest standard of our own culture. Another interesting thing about humility in this context in this passage is it really is kind of uncomfortable. Um, it's, well, let me put it this way. It would appear from just looking at the story of Jesus that God isn't exactly a divine safe space. He sometimes presses us to be uncomfortable. And Jesus does this to that as well. His invitation to us is, follow me. Okay, that sounds good. Is he pointing us towards comfort when he says that? Well, like the next words out of his mouth, he says, well, hey, just so you know, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but you won't even have a place to lay your head. Oh, that sounds great. Um, uh, unless a seed is buried in the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. But if you die and are buried, then you'll bear fruit. Oh, this is great. And in case that was ambiguous in reference, Take up your cross and follow me. Um, what if I have to leave my family and fortune and land behind? And Jesus is like, so glad you asked. That's right. That's exactly what you have to do. Just tell me when we hit the comfort part, okay? It's kind of crazy. And honestly, following Jesus sounds just a little bit uncomfortable, unsafe, um, scary. Let me point out, Jesus himself didn't necessarily find comfort when he came to God. And we don't have to speculate about this one. Again, just working our way on down through the cha this chapter and that which follows, he heads up to the Garden of Gethsemane, walking back up the road. He walked down here, probably walking on the same palm fronds, which were still green. It was only three or four days later, right? And he's going up there on Thursday night uh, of Holy Week to pray. And why is he out there praying? Well, because he's troubled in spirit. He's feeling uncomfortable. And so he prays all night. And he prays that the cup would pass from him. And instead he got the confirmation that he'd have to drink the cup all the way to the dregs. Oh. So he arrived in the garden accompanied by his disciples, singing hymns on their way to prayer, and he left the garden arrested by soldiers, taking him off to be flogged. Okay. But he also left the garden knowing what he was about. He knew what he needed to do next. His calling had been clarified. Jesus, you're going to the cross. 
He didn't get increased comfort. He got clarified calling. And we can't judge whether or not we found our way to God or to Jesus by asking whether or not we have comfort. Far better would be to ask whether or not we found a clarity for our calling. And the interesting thing is oftentimes when we find calling, comfort comes alongside. We kind of have that feeling of taking the deep breath and saying, at the very least, I know what I have to do. And then you go and do it. And there is a real comfort that comes from that. But notice you didn't find that comfort by aiming for it. You found the comfort by aiming for Jesus to find your calling, to know what next steps you need to take. And as you took those steps, you found comfort to be your companion. It's not the comfort of ease, but the comfort of purpose. And by the way, it rarely is the comfort of just seeing the whole thing. It's far more, as I mentioned, like seeing the next step. I grew up in Colorado, um, and my kids actually now live in Denver. We were just there. And where they live, in fact, anywhere in Denver, if you look up and to the right, to the north, you can see Long's Peak. Look down to the south, you can see Pike's Peak. These are two 14,000-foot peaks that are pretty much flush up against the front range. I think they're almost 190 miles apart. And I can see them both, just like standing in the backyard. There they are. There's Long's, there's Pike's. That's good visibility. Welcome to what you never get in the Christian life. Sorry, I just... Yeah, well, I mean, what am I supposed to say? We almost never see the whole front range. It's much more like fog lights, where you see enough to keep driving. You see enough to keep driving, and usually enough to keep wishing the fog would go away. But you see enough to keep driving. And so I think this is what Jesus is really calling us to, as he calls us into his humble kingdom, is a willingness to just walk the steps that he shows us piece by piece, bit by bit, step by step. If we decide to follow him, then do anything. We decide that we actually think humility is in some sense a matter of life and death. It's the only cure to the cancer that besets our soul. And let me close by just making an observation that this isn't a thing that just applies to us personally. In this context, as I've already mentioned, it's really clear that it also applies to your attitude towards the kingdom. Or perhaps, to make it more directly related where the disciples were living, towards the kingdom that they were sitting in. Like, the politics of their day and time. Hmm. And it's interesting to think, how good are we doing as modern disciples at navigating our political realm with humility. As if we were seeking a kingdom of peace. As if the one we followed was a humble king who would bring us into a humble kingdom. I, I guess I worry that when things begin to go wrong in our 
kingdoms, be it the disciples' kingdom or our kingdom. Disciples had lots of things to complain about. They really were being oppressed by Rome, right? So we're not saying these guys were just making up a problem that wasn't there. And I would say likewise for us. I'm not saying there's no problem with our political world, right? They had a problem. We have a problem. But here's my fear that we've kind of become biblical relativists when it comes to things like gentleness and humility and trusting God to accomplish things that are probably best left in God's realm. And this is not that we don't do anything, right? We just talked about like the mission-driven version of humility. But the bottom line is there's no way to get to Jesus' kingdom without walking Jesus' way. And the way of Christ, for better or for worse, is a path of humility. It's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's many laws if you're running a talk radio show. So let me encourage you to stop and think before you tweet, before you repeat with friends, what sort of a kingdom am I building? kingdom of peace? What sort of a king am I following? Do I want to imitate his kingship or his humility? And let me encourage you to choose to imitate his humility. And I'll be the first to acknowledge it isn't always the most pleasant alternative. In fact, I like this alternative better when it seemed to require of me less faith than it does today. See, I'm I'm not living in like some bubble. I'm not living with my head in the ground when I look at our situation. I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable about it. I guess I'm just feeling more uncomfortable about saying Jesus can't handle it, so I better step in and help him out on this one. It's a big world. He's got a lot to cover. I'll cover it. Got this one, Jesus. So, it doesn't really matter if at this moment you're struggling more with some of these things in your personal life or in anxiety about the politics or the world out there. Um, Let me just give you the strongest encouragement I possibly can to trust and follow the humble king. To believe he really will build his kingdom on earth. And to believe it really is possible that that kingdom would come by someone who is best imaged as the lamb who was slaughtered rather than the lion of Judah. Because it seems like that's what the book of Revelation prefers to image it with even for the second coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, it is not uncommon for me to come to you and walk away surprised and sometimes even discomforted because I, I sense in coming to you a calling to how I live my life that doesn't match up with all of my desires. 
So, Lord, I pray you'd help us to be people of courageous calling and of courageous humility, people who are truly willing to trust to you things that we might want to grab for ourselves. And, Lord, give us the grace to walk faithfully in your footsteps that we might joyfully enter your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.